This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back to The Rounds Table, listeners. Thank you for joining us for part two of the presentation of the top five papers in internal medicine at this year's Canadian Society of Internal Medicine annual general meeting. For those of you who missed last week's episode, this is a two-part series that examines the most important and influential papers in internal medicine that had been discussed on the podcast between November 2016 and October 2017. We specifically wish to thank the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine for their gracious invitation and generosity in allowing us to participate in such a meaningful way at this year's meeting. Also of note, as a collaboration between the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine and the Rounds Table, we will be publishing a review of the top five papers in the Canadian Journal of General Internal Medicine, the official journal of the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine. Be sure to pick up a copy and have a read. Without further ado, we take you now to part two of the live recording of myself and Dr. Amol Verma delivering this year's Top 5 Papers talk at the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine's 2017 Annual General Meeting. Okay, let's move on. Okay, uh, the old adage, airway today, gone tomorrow. So we're looking at the reevaluation of diagnosis uh, of asthma in adults who have physician-diagnosed asthma. This was a, a study uh, published by the Canadian Respiratory Research Network uh, in JAMA. A breath of fresh air. So uh, 53... I'm just going to ignore that terrible <laughs> one. Okay. okay, so this 53-year-old man... Here's your case. 53-year-old man diagnosed with asthma several years ago. You're seeing him in your general internal medicine clinic. He mentions that he has asthma. He's never smoked. He may have had PFTs, but he's not really sure if he had formal testing. He does daily take a puffer... Um, and he occasionally gets short of breath when he exerts himself. So the question is, should you order PFTs? Should you question that diagnosis? Should you try to taper his asthma medication? I don't know, Mo. Why don't you tell me what the bottom line for this trial was? As with all things, Karen, I'll tell you what to do. So here's the bottom line. This was a multi-center prospective cohort study which showed that one-third of adults with physician-diagnosed asthma did not have the diagnosis on subsequent testing and could be safely tapered off of their medications. Okay, well, that sounds like a very surprising finding, and I think that's probably why it's made our top five. Take me through the design of this uh, study. So uh, the participants were enrolled in this study through an interesting approach. Uh, The investigators randomly called people in the 10 largest cities in Canada Uh, and asked if they had been uh, diagnosed by a doctor with asthma in the last five years. Uh, And they enrolled patients that way, having a population-based sample. They excluded people who had more than 10 years of smoking exposure to try to eliminate the COPD population, COPD asthma overlap population. What they did with all of the participants who enrolled in this study was they uh, put them through a diagnostic algorithm for asthma, which I'll mention on the next slide. Then they followed up those participants for 12 months afterwards to see what happened with them. They also contacted the doctors of each of those participants to try to understand how the initial diagnosis was made and what formal testing had been done previously, if any, for asthma. Okay, well, so take us through this complicated uh, diagram. Yeah, so the the major takeaway from this algorithm, this flowchart that's up on the slide, is that they worked really hard to try to diagnose patients with asthma, like way harder than any of us would. (laughs) So the first thing they did was they did formal spirometry before and after bronchodilation. Um, And if people had asthma confirmed by the usual criteria, um, they were considered to be diagnosed with asthma. 
If they did not have asthma confirmed, then they went on to the more sensitive test, which was the methicoline challenge. And again, if they met criteria, they were diagnosed with asthma. If they, again, did not meet criteria and they happened to be on asthma medications, they tapered their medications halfway off and then completely off and repeated the methicoline challenge again and again to see if they ultimately met criteria. For the people who were finally completely tapered off medications and didn't meet the criteria for asthma on the methicoline challenge, they then saw a respirologist who formally went through an, an assessment and determined if that participant had asthma or not and tried to see if they had other diagnoses that might be explaining. So they worked really hard to diagnose people with asthma. Absolutely. I can't think of many of my patients who've had four different spirometry. Uh, or many who would want that. Okay. Would want that. Tell so, me about the results of all. They enrolled about 600 people in the study. Uh, and this was interesting. This was a population who had sort of mild to moderate asthma. About half of them were using asthma medication daily. 90% had recently used an asthma medication. Um, and asthma was ruled out in, oh, and I should say an important exclusion criteria were people who were on oral corticosteroids for asthma. So there were not a lot of really severe patients with asthma in this study. What they were able to do was rule out asthma in 33% of participants. And of those 33% who were completely tapered off medications, almost all of them stayed off their puffers for 12 months with no adverse consequences. Okay, and what about the rate of the testing for uh, asthma in this cohort? Yeah, so then remember they asked the, the doctors of these uh, participants how, how was the asthma initially diagnosed. And unsurprisingly, like there's a body of literature to say that a lot of asthma in the community is not diagnosed, in the community and in you know, wherever you are, is not diagnosed with uh, formal testing, a spirometry or other pulmonary function tests. And in fact, in this case, only half of the participants had received formal spirometry testing. And what they did find, unsurprisingly, is if you did receive formal spirometry testing, you were more likely to have that diagnosis confirmed when they went through that whole challenge. So spirometry is a helpful test for diagnosing asthma. No big surprise. But you're telling me, Amol, that half the patients carried a diagnosis of asthma who had never had formal spirometry? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Wow. And the other thing that's really interesting, actually, is even among the participants who had formal testing for asthma, 10 to 20% actually had their initial diagnosis reversed when it was rechecked. So if they were positive initially, they became negative later, or if they were negative initially, they became positive later. So now that's crazy, because, like, what is asthma? <laughs> so tell me, well, I mean, this is, this is shocking, to be honest. Uh, what were the reasons that they changed the diagnosis? Yeah, so there's probably three explanations for this. The first is just misdiagnosis in the first place. It was never tested properly. Maybe there was problems with the initial spirometry. Um, the second is maybe it's the natural history of asthma. Maybe we know that, in fact, there's, especially people who have childhood asthma, a lot of it remits as people get older. So maybe that's the natural course of the disease, that it waxes and wanes. And a third explanation is that we know that asthma can be induced in response to occupational or environmental exposures. And maybe some of those things change for participants over time. So some three sort of things that explain this without us having to entirely reevaluate what we know about asthma, which is comforting. Take me home, Amal. I don't know how to respond to that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm all flustered now. I'm blushing. Uh, okay. I didn't even buy him dinner. Okay, so uh, take-home messages. So spirometry must be part of the asthma diagnosis. I think that's like a key point uh, of this study. Um, and it is worth revisiting the diagnosis in patients who have mild to moderate asthma, close follow-up, good control on their puffers. It might be worth trying to revisit the diagnosis 
And with close follow-up, a lot of people can be safely tapered off of asthma medications. Okay, so let's go back to our case. So the answer is yes, you should order PFTs, and maybe you should try to taper. All right. <clears throat> I don't have the singing voice, and I have a bit of a head cold this morning, but a great song by Journey, Don't Stop, BNP. And let's talk about whether we should use BNP to guide our management of heart failure in patients with reduced ejection fraction. So Amol, a case for you. 62-year-old gentleman with ischemic cardiomyopathy and diabetes. He has a very poor LV function with 25%, symptomatic, but he's on a beta blocker and ACE inhibitor. He had a recent hospitalization for decompensated heart failure. You measured his BNP at that time. In fact, you measured an NT pro-BNP at your center, and it was 2,653. Very, very elevated. You're seeing him in clinic and follow-up. The question is, should you repeat his BNP to help titrate your management moving forward uh, to help guide your therapy? I honestly have no idea. Well, this trial found That's that... That's a lie. I've read these slides before. <laughs> in uh, good plant. Uh, in patients with chronic uh, heart failure and reduced no, ejection please. fraction, there was no difference in time to first hospitalization or in cardiovascular mortality using a BNP-guided strategy. And to me, that raises doubts about the utility in titrating your management uh, uh, for the role of BNP. Okay, so tell me more about this study. So this was an unblinded multicenter randomized trial. Uh, it, it included individuals, uh, just under 900 individuals. About half of them had ischemic, ischemic cardiomyopathy. Um, but the, the rate of baseline medication use for recognized chronic heart failure therapy medications was quite, uh, quite high. Uh, you can see the numbers there. Uh, their inclusion criteria were that your NT pro BNP was over 2,000. Uh, if you're a center that uses BNP, then that was over 400 picograms per mil. And you'd had to have a heart failure event uh, within the past year, which essentially equated to a decompensation in your heart failure. You required uh, diuretics. You were in the emergency room. You were, uh, you were admitted to hospital for that. And then they compared, they randomized individuals to a BNP-guided therapy group, whereupon their physicians were told to target their BNP to less than 1,000. And that was uh, compared to usual care, which was evidence-based guidelines on how to manage heart failure, uh, and they did not get to know the, the individual's BNP. But the individual's BNP was measured for comparison for later on. And the last point I should say is the physicians, all the physicians in both arms of the, uh, the trial, were told to focus on the neuro, neurohormonal therapies like beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, MRAs, rather than just using furosemide as a diuretic, unless there was evidence of pulmonary venous congestion. Great. So tell me, what did they find? Well, unfortunately or fortunately, this was a negative trial. Um, they did not find any difference at one year in hospitalization or cardiovascular death between the two groups. They looked at all-cause mortality, um, and that was a non-significant difference that we see. And you can see the curves there uh, demonstrate no separation. Yeah, really interesting. So, okay, so Kieran, why do you think that there was no difference between the two groups? Good question. Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, first, it's a very sick population compared to previous trials. So about 30% of the individuals died in this trial. Half of them were hospitalized. Um, and as a consequence, potentially, of that, only half of the patients re actually achieved that target BNP of less than 1,000, which is what they were trying to uh, get, get to. Um, in addition, on both arms, um, half the patients saw a 50% reduction in their BNP um, and so uh, everybody was getting down on their BNP, whether you knew about what that BNP level was or not. So that's really interesting. So you mentioned that there were some old trials. So there were some previous trials that were actually positive that showed that measuring BNP and targeting BNP was effective. 
Um, and you mentioned, you know, the patient difference in this population, and that this population is probably more reflective of our patients who we see with, with heart failure, a bit older, more comorbidities. But the other interesting thing is here, the, the slide says that the comparison was usual care. But tell me, what was usual care in this patient population? Because it doesn't, it, it might be different than like sort of usual care. Yeah, there was a very focused and concerted effort to um, make sure physicians were using the most up-to-date uh, Canadian or American uh, guidelines on heart failure and really trying to, to get them on uh, in line with those guidelines. So whether you practice that in your uh, individual practice or not, that might be a, f- a focus of difference. The, the other point is to say is that in prior trials, the rate, the baseline rate of medication use for those chronic heart failure therapies was actually much, much lower than in this trial. So I think overall, the patients in this trial are actually receiving pretty top quality evidence-based guideline therapy uh, compared to, uh, to previous trials. Right. And a lot of these uh, uh, study centers were like heart excellence centers, right? So they were seeing like, you know, really good heart failure yeah, care. Yeah, so, absolutely. Okay. So what's the, uh, t- t- take me home here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm all in management of chronic heart failure. Um, I would propose that use of BNP is not helpful to guide your titration of therapies with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. But this, this t- trial teaches us that adhering to guidelines and getting your patients on those evidence-based therapies seems to really work uh, overall. Awesome. And so let's come back, come back to our case. Um, so you're a gentleman with ischemic cardiomyopathy. Should you repeat his BNP in clinic? I would say from a standpoint of trying to titrate his therapies, no. There is some role for prognostic, uh, prognostication with BNP, but I wouldn't use it to guide my therapy. Absolutely. And so for this guy, it seems like you know, he's getting pretty good uh, a guideline-based care, although he's not on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, and maybe that's something to think about. So sort of maybe we all just need to, instead of reading about BMPs, we should just brush up on our heart failure. Right, and there's a workshop coming up, I think, on the latest uh, therapies for heart failure. Nice. So a little plug for that. Okay. Okay, so we've come to the end of the figurative road. Um, uh, And so the last thing uh, that we're going to talk about is opioid prescribing. And this section we're calling the path to discharge is paved with Percocet. And I'm not joking, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not trying to be glib about an important topic. This is something that I was taught by an emergency room physician during my CC3 clerkship year. So I was specifically taught, this is how to get people out of hospital, out of my emergency department faster. Um, And so a very topical introduction to um, this article, which was Opioid Prescribing Patterns of Emergency Physicians and Risk of Long-Term Opioid Use, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So... um, and I don't look that old, right? Like, that wasn't that long ago. Uh, so don't answer that question. Um, so case five, Kieran. 67-year-old woman with back pain visited the emergency department for a sudden severe onset of pain. She was diagnosed with an osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture and referred to the internal medicine service. You saw her. You planned to send her home from the emergency department. And you're thinking, I'll give her a short course of opioids. How much harm could it do? Eh, probably not much, right? Right. Okay, not right. Um, so... The bottom line of this large observational study found that long-term opioid use was more common among emergency department patients who received a prescription from a doctor who is a high-intensity prescriber of opioids versus doctors who are low-intensity prescribers of opioids. And using this interesting method that we'll talk about, they were able to quantify how much harm can come from opioid prescriptions. And what they found was that for every 48 opioid prescriptions that were filled out of the emergency department, you had one additional long-term user. 
When you think about, you know, that's not a huge number, but when you think about the population and the number of opioid, like if I just think about the number of opioid prescriptions I write, the po possibilities for harm are pretty staggering. Okay, well, take us through the study design. So this was an American study. Uh, they used a 20% random sample of U.S. Medicare beneficiaries. So remember, Medicare are older patients over the age of 65. Uh, and they, it, was, they used, it was about 400,000 participants enrolled. They enrolled participants who had an emergency department visit but were not admitted to the hospital. There was, uh, these patients had no opioid prescription filled in the six months prior to uh, their emergency department visit. So at least they were not chronic routine users of opioids. They used an interesting exposure. They categorized all of the emergency doctors as either high-intensity or low-intensity prescribers, and we can talk a little more about how they did that. And then they looked at long-term opioid use, which they defined as a patient using opioids for more than 180 days over 12 months, so for more than half of the next year that that patient went on to use opioids. So while I'm a little worried about my opioid prescribing patterns, I'm taking a long look in the mirror at myself, how do I describe myself as a high-intensity prescriber? Yeah, so the, the um, authors of the study used a really interesting uh, study design, and they took advantage of one of the features of emergency department care. So one of the things you might say if you prescribe a lot of opioids is, my patients need a lot of opioids, as opposed to the other doctors who prescribe less opioids. Maybe I see more patients with traumatic injuries, or you know, maybe my patient population is different. Well, the interesting thing about emergency departments is that within a site, all of the eMERGE docs see a very similar patient population because they don't get to choose who their patients are, right? It's just whenever they're on service, the, whoever walks in the door is their patient. And so there's sort of a natural randomization that occurs within a hospital. And so you can compare doctors within a site and say that basically they're seeing the same population of patients. So if I see differences in the way they prescribe opioids, that's related to the way that doctor practices rather than a difference in the patients that they have. And so that's what they did. They looked at doctors within a single center, and they categorized them into quartiles, high versus low prescribing of opioids. And the really nice thing about this method, when you look at this panel A on this figure, is that it really nicely separates the doctors. So then you pool everyone who's in the high quartile, and you see how often they prescribe opioids, and you pool everyone in the low quartile and see how often they prescribe opioids. The low quartile prescribed opioids at a rate of 7% of all ED visits ultimately filled a prescription for opioids within a short time after that ED visit. The high prescribers prescribed an opioid 24% of the time. So like one in four of the patients that were seen by those doctors end up getting an opioid prescription. That is a staggering spread, right? Like a three-fold difference in prescribing patterns of opioids. And I would suspect, and I, I don't know if anyone in the room has looked at you know, the data for internal medicine docs, but I would suspect that there's probably some similar variation in the way we practice, too. Um, so then you look at the patients of the doctors who had high-intensity prescribing, and you see that they have a much more common uh, long-term rate of opioid use. Now, those rates are relatively small, so that's panel B on this figure. So patients who were seen by a doctor who prescribed opioids more commonly ended up going on to long-term use about 1.5% of the time. People who saw a low-intensity prescriber ended up going about 1.16% of the time. So that's a 0.35% absolute risk difference. So not a huge absolute risk difference, 
But if you can think about it, that's just luck of the draw. Like whoever happened to be on call for that patient when that person showed up in the hospital. And there's a substantially increased risk for that person, a substantially increased harm for that person in the long term. So well, let's, let's move downstream from the prescribing a little bit. Did they see any increased hospitalizations? Or what about the patients who were prescribed opioids by the low-intensity prescribers? Did they suffer you know, uncontrolled pain as a consequence? It's a really great question. So to answer the first part, um, the small increase, they did see a small increase in opioid-related hospitalizations for the high-intensity prescribers. So high-intensity prescribers, when they saw a patient, those patients were more likely to return to the hospital for a fall or a fracture or for an opioid-related poisoning. Interestingly, they, they tried to think, okay, how can we get it under treatment, right? Because they couldn't ask 375,000 people about pain scores. There's no data about that. So how can they think about under treatment? Well, they used a proxy. They said, how many of those people came back to the emergency department for the same problem in the next 14 days or the next 30 days? And they saw that there was no increase in repeat utilization for the same problem as a sign of maybe uncontrolled pain. Now, that's obviously a super crude measure. But using that measure, they saw, they saw no signs of undertreatment in the low-intensity group. Wow, that was almost as if we'd practiced that slide. Uh, so go home, Amal. <laughs> go home alone. See how this, this, I guess this hour didn't work very well. Okay, so um, the major take-home messages from this study are that opioid prescribing varies widely among emergency department physicians, and it would be great for us as a community to think about how that varies among internists. There were meaningful, though modest, differences in long-term opioid use related to that. And the magnitude of that harm is that for every 48 opioid prescriptions, you get one additional long-term user. And I think the biggest takeaway for me as someone who practices hospitalist medicine is that episodic care can really cause harm in people's lives. I often you know, see someone in a cross-section of their life and never see them again. And you sometimes wonder how much, you know, how much harm can I really do? And if it's going to help them be pain-free for a couple of days, you know, maybe that's the best approach. But this is really making me rethink that philosophy. So let's go back to our case. Yeah, so I mean, I think the answer is, should I give her a short course of opioids and how much harm could it do? And I think the point is for us to think about, you know, it certainly could do harm. And in someone with an osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture in which the evidence for opioids is very poor to begin with, maybe this is not the right uh, treatment approach for this patient. I absolutely agree. I've definitely started to pause when, I, when that uh, idea crosses my mind. If I suggest a eh, short course, I'll keep them out for yeah. a couple of days. And I think it echoes nicely the talk that uh, Dave Yearling gave a couple of days ago with Pearls about how to minimize the prescribing. And I'll make one interesting point. So one of the things they saw in this study was that the high-intensity prescribers were not prescribing higher doses of opioids. They were just prescribing them a lot more commonly. So you might think you're a sparing opioid prescriber because you only give people a low dose of opioids. But in fact, it's all, the biggest effect here was the frequency of, the, uh, of how often you were giving a prescription, not the dose with which people were giving the prescription. So um, Kieran, that brings us to the end of our five papers, a whirlwind tour of research in 2017. For, the good news is for those in the audience, you basically don't have to read any journals now till next year, and we'll, you'll hear, hear about the top five. Um, we're going to end with an interactive activity because they told us that's what we should do. So everyone, take out your iPhone or Android device. I'm an Android person. Open up um, your uh, podcast app, whether it's iTunes or I use uh, uh, 
podcast addict. Um, search for the rounds table, <laughs> and then click subscribe. And don't forget your five-star rating uh, before you <laughs> yeah. download it. And that counts as interactivity. Thank you very much, Thank ladies and gentlemen. We're open for questions. Well done, gentlemen. Yeah. Well done, gentlemen. That was fantastic. I took away some very useful pearls. So uh, the first that I wrote down was, uh, and I'm going to quote these guys forever now, the self-promotion is never shameless. <laughs> I think we should all use that for everyone. And the other one is if you're um, really trying to understand the bottom line physiologic mechanism of something, just ask somebody to take you home. Please take, please take me home. All right, so uh, question and answers, and I would implore this, uh, you guys, to put it on the, on the podcast, and I guarantee you the uptake will be higher. All right, who's first over here? Go ahead. So, uh, Stephen, yeah. Uh, thanks for what is undoubtedly the best top five papers in the history of the CSM, CSIM annual meeting. So thank you very much. We're definitely recording that. Okay, yeah. Yes. So I've given you a quotable quote there. So my question is about the BNP study. So that was done in non-hospitalized patients, if I understand correctly. And I, I guess one question is, uh, uh, what is the evidence regarding the use of BNP to guide therapy in hospitalized patients? And is it dangerous to generalize from this study to the hospital setting? Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, I, I think uh, definitely the findings from this study should not be applied to those in hospital. I think you're you're dealing with acute decompensation in a hospitalized patient versus these individuals had a recent decompensation but are at least somewhat, somewhat compensated to the point that they're now being cared for in an ambulatory clinic. Um, so I, I think you absolutely need to have caution in, uh, in applying the results from this trial to our hospitalized patients and whether you should use BNP uh, or not. I don't know, Mo, if you have any comments. No, I completely agree. That's, hopefully someone's doing that randomized trial right now. Has that study been... Is there evidence available now no. on that? Yeah. Thanks. All right, so um, one more shameless plug, which is never shameless. Uh, I was on rounds two weeks ago. This is to all the staff in the room. I was on rounds two weeks ago pontificating about opiates overuse, and my house staff, including clinical clerks and R1s, told me about this trial. When I asked them, where, pray tell, did you find this information, they said... On the rounds table, silly, of course. And so um, just like the Times, uh, the house staff are, are getting really good information. I've been listening to this podcast for years. It's very, very good. And if you don't want to look dumb in front of your house staff, listen to it. <laughs> I agree with Steve. This is probably the best top five papers I've heard in, uh, in a decade at CSIM. So let's uh, thank these fine gentlemen. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. 
Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us.